0: This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm Alex Foote. American anthropologist Leslie White once wrote, everything in the universe can be described in terms of energy. As governments grapple with the realities of climate change, the transition to sustainable energy solutions becomes pivotal. But how do we make this transition just, inclusive and effective? Today, I'm joined by two esteemed Curtin University professors, Professor Peter Ashworth and Professor Petra Charkett will break down the complex layers of the energy humanities, the changes in public attitudes towards energy, and the need for an equitable energy shift. If you'd like to find out more about this research, visit the links provided in the show notes. Energy is often a future-focused subject, and we're going to get to that, but I wanted to start with the past, and more specifically get to know you two a little bit better before we break into the subject. So, Peter... How did you eventually end up becoming a professor here at Curtin? What was it that drew you eventually to come to Curtin?
1: So I'm an old WA girl. I grew up here. I grew up in a little country town called Narogen, Um and then went to boarding school in Perth and have spent the last 30 years away living in Brisbane, living in Ireland, living in Denmark. Um, but my parents are getting end of life and so it was a nice time to return mm-hmm. I guess, and this opportunity to be the director of the Institute for Energy Transition came up and I was successful in the global search. So it was a fantastic um, opportunity because I think the energy transition is probably one of the biggest challenges we've got to deal with right now or are dealing with.
0: Wow. Awesome. Petra, yourself, how did you eventually come to Curtin? I know you uh, originated from overseas, yeah? Yes. So
2: I'm originally from Austria. But I have this North American accent because I spent about 15, 17 years in the U.S., did my Ph.D. there in Arid Lands Resource Sciences and worked at Penn State University. And then decided it was time to leave the U.S. and came to Australia, to Perth, actually really eight, eight and a half years ago. And um, yeah, I joined Curtin a year and a half ago, so in July last year. and. Um, The topic of energy humanities was among the very first I heard when I joined Curtin. And uh, yes, it turned out to be a really exciting space and I'm very happy to work in that space. And I obviously know it's important and um, at the same time we have quite a bit of work to do to explain what the energy humanities are and I think we can help with this today.
0: Awesome. That's what I was getting to. I think a good way to explain what the energy humanities are is to explain where it comes from, um, and this is open to either of you. Where did the energy humanities originate mm. from, and who did it originate for, as a, as an idea? Because I understand it's relatively new.
2: Um, it is fairly new, but it has um, origins that go way back, and I'm happy to explain a little bit. Um, Energy humanities, if you want, is a subfield of a broader field of inquiry called environmental humanities. And humanities is really everything from philosophy and political science and psychology to geography, which is what I do, anthropology, literary studies, and arts. So it's quite a diverse field. And so energy humanities as a subfield of environmental humanities started as a field of inquiry um, maybe 20 years ago or so in North America in particular, uh, also in Europe. But the origins go, as I said, way back. And an example that I um, have come across in my own work is that uh, I worked in West Africa in the 1990s. I was leading a development project in Senegal in the mid-'90s and then started graduate school in uh, Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. And one of the first classes I, or units I took um, introduced me to the concept of political ecology, so what are the politics in ecological sciences management, land use management. And what we came across was, and that happened in the mid-90s, second half of the 90s, uh, and you may recall that too, the energy crisis uh, in Europe, we felt that, but also the political struggles in the Niger Delta, so massive, massive um, oil extraction territory, and the uprising of um, local community members, particularly the Ogoni people in the Niger Delta, and the very brutal um, execution of Ogoni leaders at that time. Ken saro was the leader. Um, he, had written, he was an author as well, a critical thinker. And he wrote the acceptance speech to the Alternative Livelihood Award that was awarded to him from a prison cell. And was executed shortly thereafter and that example as i said that's something i came across when i started graduate school graduate school in arizona that really stuck with me and that's how i got interested more and more into struggles over resources struggles and tension and conflict over extraction extractive industries and of course there are multiple examples around the world Um, but that's that's how i started in that field and it's not just something that has colonial ties and roots it's something that has come with us into the very present and present and it's likely to go with us into the future if we're not very careful.
0: Yeah when I heard about the concept it made total sense when I think back to how many big policy decisions or conflicts are at a root level over energy and resources it's like oh maybe this does really need its own Yes. a specific place of inquiry. Peter, why does the energy transition need a humanities look?
1: Well, I think you have probably summarised it. Whatever transition, particularly around energy, people are at its core. And so how that interaction happens across society um, is really important. And I think what we've seen, I mean, my background is really interesting, the integration of science and technology in society. And that's often where contestation emerges. Um, it's interesting I actually worked for Body Shop many years ago and um, the Ogoni were part of campaigns that we ran and so the whole Ken were I was there when Anita Roddick was made a queen of the Ogoni tribe. So it's interesting, this sort of, the legacy issues that actually come and inform um, going forward. But right now, um, the scale that's required, the speed that's required is just massive and actually trying to bring people along with that in a way that they feel comfortable is not easy, it creates contestation and so I think this is where the humanities intersection actually starts to try and unravel, understand what are the values that are at play, what are the conflicts that are at play and how do you find a way forward and um, a classic example right now is what's going with in the eastern states around upgrading to uh, transmission lines but it's actually all over the world. There is massive protest right now um, around, you know, the need to build large transmission lines to integrate lots of renewable energy, and people are just going, "Hang on a minute, you know, we need to talk about this. We need to know more. What are the trade offs?" Um, and I think this is where we come into play when we're thinking about this sort of the new directions.
0: Yeah, um, and you're kind of talking about public attitudes there. How would you see the public attitudes towards the changeover to renewables shift in the last? even five years? It's
1: a great question. I've been looking at public attitudes through national um, surveys but also through deliberative process focus groups both here in Australia and internationally. And when you ask people, what do they think? Everybody loves renewables, whether you come from Japan, from the UK, from the US. They'll always, oh, solar and wind, fantastic. But actually what then plays out is quite different. And what's interesting right now is an, an element of concern around the speed that we're having to sort of roll this out that it's not actually there's also this question about biodiversity and how do we ensure net positive biodiversity so in actual fact what we're seeing is some really strong almost preservationists conservationists actually starting to protest renewable energy projects because of this concern about trade-offs and balancing so in general um, most people are very supportive of the transition but then of course it's Where is it going to be placed? How efficient is it? How much is it going to cost? There's all of those different questions that play out.
0: Would something like that be the protests I've seen about wind farms, offshore wind farms in the ocean and whales or... Uh, big solar farms, it's that kind of trade-off, right?
1: Absolutely, and I think the other thing that's coming through that plays out, and Petra might like to jump in, is this idea of the misinformation that gets thrown around sometimes as well, but you know that, that plays a big part where different players will throw out information and people, as we know, will tend to seek out information that reinforces their views, which is where things start to unravel. Um, and, And that's really important. And then the other part is also First Nations as rights holders and understanding what happens. So with things like offshore wind, song lines and all of these things, how do we bring in these different components? The other side, I think also we've recently been down Petra and I to West Arthur to work with a community there who it was actually a session on wind farms um, and they were more a wind development, but it wasn't like they were against it. They were just trying to understand, well, what does it mean? What does it look like? How can I benefit? What are the impacts to our life and livelihood? So I think people are quite open. Um, so while we might see some loud, loud voices protesting, I would encourage, and that's what we try to do with our work, is encourage governments to look below that to the broader cross-section and really try and understand what are the questions that they're asking, what are their concerns.
0: Yeah, and looking at that cross-section, Petra, um, I'm interested to know what sort of inequities climate change either has impacted on people now or will into the future. What are the sort of aspects of someone's being or a group that makes them disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change? It's a bit of a broad question.
2: Uh, It's exactly what I've been working on over the last 10 years, so I could give you uh, a lot of insight here. But I think maybe just to um, start with a concrete example, let's keep it to Perth Metro, and then we may just branch out WA and kind of the rest of the world, because it is really a matter of scale. A lot is happening here in the context of systemic disadvantage, marginalization, structural disadvantage of communities. And um, we often either lose track of it or avoid touching the complicated political topic of vulnerability and vulnerabilities, but this is exactly where the pain points are. So to give an example, what does uh, differential climate impact mean in the context of energy? There is, I think, a very useful concept, which is energy precarity or energy hardship or energy poverty. And when we think about the word poverty, often we think about poor people elsewhere. We don't often think about the poor people right here, right now. So how does energy precarity or poverty or uh, hardship play out here? In the context of the housing crisis, where a lot of people don't have adequate housing or no housing at all, in the context of increasing electricity prices, where people have to make, many people have to make a decision, a trade-off between paying for electricity or paying for food or getting their medication Electricity is usually the first one that goes because, well, paying your rent is more important. If you don't, you get evicted. But there are many people in a situation who simply cannot afford to cover all these expenses. So energy poverty, precarity, hardship happens when people either don't have air conditioning, don't have fans that work, are not allowed structurally because they're in government housing or public housing to actually make any modifications in the places they live in. They live in places that are poorly insulated, that have no shading. When these people cannot afford, don't have air conditioning, other ways of cooling, don't have shades or blinds outside, don't have trees around their property, these are the ones who suffer first. The same is true for cold winter months, right? People who purposefully, consciously cannot, will not afford to cook a meal because they cannot afford turning on electricity. There's also people who cannot afford um, heating more than a room or purposefully sleep six people in one room to keep each other warm with body heat. So that's energy precarity. Is that a result of differential impact of climate change Yes, because the exposure is the same. We all live in the same place, but we start with very different vulnerabilities. If you're structurally disadvantaged, whether you are a rough sleeper, a single parent, if you're somebody who is on a disability pension, if it is somebody who is part of a culturally or linguistically diverse group, homeless people... Is a whole range of people, and often these are what we call intersecting vulnerabilities. It's not just one, it's an accumulation, accumulative effect. And these are the ones who often fall through the cracks when we talk about climate um, adaptation plans that often start at the policy level, that are directed towards sectors like you know, extractive industries or transportation. Often we don't look at the people, and we don't look at those who as some would say, are considered dispensable. Yeah. And that's the injustice, and I'm really, really concerned about that, and all my work goes towards just adaptation, just transitions, and energy justice.
0: One example you made me think of there was, um, like, the push towards electric vehicles, particularly in London. I know the London Mail was trying to make it more difficult to mm-hmm. use a, a gas-guzzling car, Um and how that might disproportionately impact someone who can't afford a car like that. From your perspective then, is there a push to try and make these things cheaper and more widely available?
2: Um, there are various options for various different needs. Yeah, Not everybody may need a car, but if the recommendation is to, I, I, I was just talking this morning with a group of seniors in the Autumn Center in Rockingham, You know, where do you go when, There is a day with 35 degrees, over 40 degrees Celsius. And some elderly populations may not want to leave their house, so they don't need a car. Um, But if the recommendation, and this is what we often hear from the policy level, and that's the rhetoric, uh, is uh, go to the beach, you know? Well, who can drive to the beach? Who can afford putting petrol in their car to drive to the beach? Who can wrangle five kids into a car? So these are the questions I'm interested in. So I think, I think you're right. Partially, it is about making options available to people, making them accessible, making them cheaper, but also to understand in more detail what is it that um, folks who, for example, struggle with anxiety, um, struggle with um, mental disability, what do they actually need? And often it is just a cool place at home. It's a place where they can go and potentially spend four or five hours in, like a shopping center, like a library, without getting moved on by the police or security guards. So in the overall scheme, this all falls on the pro-poor energy solutions. And I think we could do a much better job at it um, compared to where we currently stand.
0: Kind of in that context peter i wanted to ask you about energy literacy what are the negative impacts of an energy illiterate society or a person um i know you will do it you've done a lot of surveying to people to see how energy energy literate they are and i'm interested to see what kind of questions you'd ask someone to find out whether they're energy literate or not
1: So I guess, you know, there's different levels of of what that means. And I think even the example of transport, you know, public transport is actually a really good sustainable option, but it can't be for everyone. So I think there's a whole idea of what fits for different individuals. The other thing, we wrote the CSIRO Home Energy Saving Handbook quite some time ago now, but that actually came about from people at that stage I was working at CSIRO and we'd run some focus groups actually on carbon capture and storage saying you should CSIRO invest in this as a tech. And always when you start talking about a technology, people bring it back to their own own lives. And I always remember this fellow. He was an editor of a paper in a country town in Queensland and he said, do you know what, Peter? We're just busy trying to put food on the table and, you know, go to work. We trust Sarah. Can you tell us what we have to do? And so that also what it worked out to me is this whole idea of... Um, You know, literacy, people come in and out of it at different times. So there's usually trigger points in their lives when they probably need to make these decisions. So buying a car is a really good example. And it depends on what time, you know, having the policies in place around that. Um, So literacy means many things. In my world, when you think about contention and those contested realities... I would love to lift people's level of understanding around what is actually involved in in the transition and the trade-offs. So what are the range of technologies and where do they have a place and where do they not? Now, it won't be the same for everybody and in one country it'll be different to another. But that to me is where I think there's a real missing piece in having those conversations. So surveys give us a bit of an idea. But if you read the literature as well, you know, there's this whole idea of pseudo-opinions, because of course people will have an opinion, but is it a really is it a realistic opinion? Because if they don't know much, well then they're just telling you what they think at that point. Yep. So I'm and I think Patrick, you know, we're in this idea of actually running deliberative processes where you take experts, independent experts, and this is the role of universities of so places like CSRO, where you can actually take the information. And let people deliberate. Let them listen, hear, ask questions, and sort of then start to understand. Those are the information. That's the information that I think helps to build the literacy. But it also helps to provide feedback to government and to industry around what questions, what are people interested in, and those sorts of things. So there's an element of literacy of actually having the information available at the right time. You know, and that can be when someone's having a baby all of a sudden. So they're suddenly thinking, or In other examples, Yolande Stringers in Monash, it was around looking after their pets in hot and cold. If we think about natural disasters, in response to that, how do we build resilient communities? And I've got a PhD student back in Queensland who's looking at that from the perspective of electricity. So there's multiple ways, and you know, you mentioned um, cold communities, people not from Australia, so you know, and. There was classic examples when we were writing the Energy Saving Handbook and doing some behaviour change where people from different countries that weren't used to having access to an electric stove used to use it to warm their house. Now, that's the most inefficient way. If you're living in Victoria, open up your stove and turn it on and then wondering about the price. So there's not a one-size-fits-all. And I think, again, um, the more you can engage and have those conversations, but also in that idea letting people sort of, ask the questions and find out. But we also need to take a bit of a forward step, and I think this is a role for government and institutions like ours, to actually take that information out to people and have the conversations.
0: Where do you think the general level of understanding of the energy transition is in Australia? I know you've given great suggestions to improve it, Mm -hmm. but what do you think it's impacted by today?
1: Okay, lots of things. Pete already talked about rising price. So if you would start a conversation with the broader public, you know, sitting around a table like this, and we would often say, "Well, you know, where do you get your electricity from?" A lot would just go that little switch on the wall over there, and that's their first immediate response. Or I can remember doing some stuff with some quite, you know, well-educated students around this topic, and they were all about comfort. They're, you know, they weren't really thinking beyond that. So um, I think it does, once again, it depends. I would say that's really hard to generalise. There would be some that have very strong views mm-hmm. around what it means, and some would be very against the role of renewables because they like baseload power and look what we've done and all of these sorts of things. But I think what we've seen, whenever there's a severe weather impact, you know, what we see with bushfires, with floods and so forth, that raises a level of concern and people start, you know, to be questioning it. But what happens is that then a little bit of time goes on and then it becomes normalised and people feel comfortable. So I think right now what's going to be happening in this summer is going to have a real influence on how things move. And I guess I'm thinking about Australia. We're not even talking beyond that to the broader um, you know, global south and so forth and, and some of the challenges that they face.
0: Yeah. Um, just on that, on that subject of normalisation, are there any things that come to mind that maybe were once completely far-fetched or unaccepted in the broader community, but now widely undertaken or done?
2: Well, I can provide an example, and this is a personal one. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I worked uh, in development in the mid nineties. I was in Senegal um, and I was uh, there for three years. And when I returned, and I came from Austria, so I returned to Austria. When I returned, the Austrian population had been introduced to recycling. And I had completely missed that because I was gone for three years. And so every apartment complex, every individual house had received various bins, different colors, and people had gone through a full year, or maybe it was a year and a half, of um, educational programs on how to recycle and separate uh, rubbish. And I was completely overwhelmed because it was totally new, new to me, right? I did not know where my old shoes would go. Would that be regular rubbish or would that go into something special? Probably not compost, but I was I was confused. It was new to me. But I realized that everybody around me had quite quickly gotten used to and accustomed to separating their rubbish. And for me, that was a really good example of how education can work and where sometimes it is useful to be driven from the top. There was a governmental initiative across the entire country. And I thought, how amazing. There are also, I think, and bringing it back to the context of, of energy transition here and now, I think there are wonderful examples of uh, community organizations, community collectives, mm-hmm. energy collectives that have done an incredible job of um, Informing each other, sharing information, providing practical training, whether that is with regards to installing solar or batteries or simply understanding how to navigate the often competing demands of, for example, solar providers who knock on people's doors or ring them up and it's not clear who is, you know, who is legitimate and who is a fake provider. And I think understanding how communities try to enhance their own literacy and enhance their own agency when it comes to decision-making processes is something that is quite inspiring. And I certainly could see how, how a more top-down approach from, from the state government or, or the local government agencies in combination with local communities can facilitate such um, decision-making processes, but also change not just in behavior on what we do and when we change light bulbs and when we put in solar, but also what it means actually to support each other in energy decisions, right? Can we, we, those of us who are more privileged, generate energy and actually share it with other people who live down the street with us? Currently, that's not possible, but it should be. And I think if such demands come from the bottom up, then I think it is much easier to embark on this massive challenge of the energy transition that, in my opinion, is not so much a technical challenge anymore. I think we have a lot of know-how, even though it's not perfect, but it's definitely a social challenge and a political challenge. So if we can put the emphasis there, I think this would help us tremendously. And it would also enhance People's ownership over energy futures, energy visions, what they want, how they want to see it organized. And ownership and agency is important. And people are more likely, much more likely, including myself, to embark on something which requires adjustment in our daily lives. If I can be part of the solution rather than being told you have to do this and this and that, especially if it is done in a non-consultative way.
0: It's very interesting you say that because for some reason I was listening to uh, Andrew Forrest give a talk at UWA a few weeks ago and he said something to the effect of only businesses can solve the climate crisis. We've done this. We or I need to be one to solve it. Maybe Peter, I'd like to get your thoughts on just the sort of what's the balance between that and what Petra's talking about, what we can all do.
1: So I think it's a combination of both. The reason why there's a focus on the large business multinationals is just because of the sheer scale and scope of their emissions. And always when we were working on things like intelligent grid, distributed energy, when I was at CSIRO, the technical electrical engineers always used to say, it's the C&I we need to focus on the commercial and industrial, because if you look at the emissions profile of those, it's far greater than all of the households put together. So I think that's where that comes in. But an old body shop, you know, favourite, an I always use it, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't been to bed with a mosquito. And so I think we do need to empower people and people want to be part of the change. Um, now, some will do it more quickly, like you have the people that are really active and advocates for change. There's others that are sort of sitting in the middle and I think this is also where regulation can play play a role. If you think about the incentives and the incentivisation of solar um, early on and what a great thing that did to to push it forward to make it easy and now so so many more in Australia you know, I think the leading number of rooftop solar. So it's a combination. Your comment about the tolls in London, I was there not so long ago and actually was with a cabbie who had bought a hybrid car. that, Up until this recent legislation, he was okay to drive through the City of London he said, I'm sorry, miss, I can't go this way. I've got to go this way. Otherwise, it's going to cop a 15 pound fine. And it may, you know, so there was a classic example of an unintended consequence of what's a new policy, but someone who'd done the right thing only three years before. And if we think about the life cycle emissions of a car, of, of, of the embodied emissions, it was, it's not a great thing for him to discard that and move to another and so we've got it. I think this is where we all need to work together and have a plan. But I definitely think um, industry has a role to play. The interesting thing, there's a great article I read recently about ESG by, a, um, and actually a podcast from, uh, her name is Natalie Hsu from Yale. And she was talking about ESG investing in this push for, you know, let's all just invest in the green, the good, the great, you know, but she actually made a really good article argument had sort of done the maths that when you're looking at where you really want to make a difference sure you can invest in green and that will make them bigger and larger and more successful but if you're looking at the brownfield sites where people are actually meaningfully trying to transition that investment could probably bring about or will most likely bring about a much larger emissions reduction.
0: Yeah it's more about it's not getting a new car it's a
1: Look yeah, yeah. yeah so and actually awesome. looking at those so there are companies and that are signaling they really are trying to you know transition um the classic was the old dong energy in denmark which is now orsted it's a wind so companies do move and we're seeing that and i think that's again the literacy how do we bring people's understanding that actually we've got to help those companies transition because actually just um what's the word we need selling off assets because that's an easy way to clear your deck, that's actually not helping because, you know, as Alan Finkel, our former chief scientist, talks about, the person that buys that or the company might be a second-tier company and not manage it as well. And so actually companies that are part of the problem but are actually trying to be part of the solution, I think we need to back those yep. um, and change the conversation a little bit around that.
0: I think I'll open this one up to Petra. In your words, what is a just energy transition? Who is it just for?
2: Uh, So just, just to be clear on that, means justice, so equitable. So we're not just talking about a just transition, so just doing it. It has an implication of justice and equity. So just energy transition, um, who is it for? Well, it really is for all of us. And when I say all of us, this means all us humans, including the many, many, many millions around the world who, as I said earlier, face significant disadvantage. So just energy transition should allow those who currently experience energy poverty, energy precarity to be able to cook in a way that is sustainably healthy for them good for the environment. It should allow people to commute in a way that does not increase emissions. It should allow people to heat their places, to cool their places as desired. And it should allow everybody to share energy in a way that is more equitable. But it also includes all of us non-human species who populate this planet. So all of us and I have done work in the space of multi-species justice um, is important because we often don't think about the connections between people and plants and animals. So just this morning, I mentioned earlier, we had a group discussion with senior citizens in Rockingham and the connection was very clear. What is it we need to do to increase our resilience in the energy crisis while planting more trees? Clearly, enhancing energy efficiency in homes, but also increasing tree canopy and and cover. And if we don't do that, well, animals will lose their habitat. We already know this. Um, So the seeing the connections, not just for us humans, the privileged and the disadvantaged, but also plants, animals around us that sustain us. So that's the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer is, well, what is justice? And let me just pick this apart a little bit. So in the field of social and environmental justice, we usually talk about four pillars. And these are all relevant for the just energy transition. So we talk about distributive justice. So the costs and the benefits ought to be distributed in a more even way rather than great disparities. So it's distributive justice. The second one is procedural justice. So it has to do with taking part in decision-making processes. Who has a seat at the table? Whose voice is heard? Whose voice counts in decision-making processes? And right now, (laughs) we don't have a whole lot of procedural justice. The third one is about recognition. Recognizing needs, preferences, values, um, worldviews of those that may not align with ours is fundamental for just solutions. So the the solutions that we think, we and I mean us who are sitting here in this privileged institution, mm-hmm. academic institutions, so these solutions that we envision and maybe Uh, plan out in detail and maybe even put into a policy plan um, may not be at all those that people who come with very very differently lived experiences would put as priority. So recognizing other values, understanding worldviews, including, Peter, you mentioned that, First Nations people and what just means for them in, for example, a more um, harmonious way of coexisting with all entities around us is fundamental. So we have distribution, we have procedural, we have recognition. And another element that is becoming more and more important is restorative justice. Right? So if we can restore, first recognize and then restore harm done, whether that is because of poor policies, whether or not, that is because of extractive processes that destroy environmental resources. So restoring some sense of reciprocity, healthy coexistence, respectful um, relationships with the planet, with our neighbors, then I think we are much better positioned to achieve this really, 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 really tough goal of energy justice. But I think a little bit about it, like world peace. Will we ever, ever, ever have it? Mm, Maybe not. Does that mean we shouldn't work for it? No. We ought to embrace it. We ought to put all our effort into it and to inch closer. But we have to inch closer on all these four dimensions. And that's the goal.
0: Mm. In terms of itching closer towards it in our context for us here in Perth, Peter, I'd like to ask you about WA's role in an just energy transition because we're in an interesting position. Um, We're an energy-producing state. We have a lot of mining. Um, I read today that our Premier, Roger Cook, said that WA will have to, in the short term, increase its emissions to smooth out in the long term and send energy overseas. What do you think Western Australia's role is in a just energy transition?
1: Well, it does have a large role. I think, um, again, it's at different scales. You know, so in generalising, if we thinking you asked about mining, um, there's a lot of opportunity for WA. I think, you know, all of the maps look at the critical minerals that are going to be essential for the transition. And one of the biggest issues right now is supply chain. And if we think about just, you know, the whole human rights of actually fair, um, extraction and those sorts of things. And at least, you know, Australia has a pretty good record for those compared to others. You know, lithium is the classic where there's a lot of opportunity here in Western Australia. At the moment, a lot of that um, mining of lithium is from places like the Congo, which, you know, human rights issues abound. And so there's other elements at play. Um, what else? I mean, there's a whole push, obviously, for exporting and the development of a hydrogen hydrogen industry and with that comes a whole range of opportunities as well we do need if if hydrogen is going to be the green hydrogen that's the aspiration we need to deploy a huge amount of renewable energy and we need to have it connected so you need grids and so forth which is obviously there's a lot of aspiration but also what that brings then is the opportunity to value add and this is where I think The long-term goal of actually really making an impact on bringing emissions down is through this idea of, well, what can we do within our existing industries? What other processes might we include that will actually reduce the overall emissions profile? So rather than just digging it up and exporting are there things that we can do here to value add, which would then mean you're actually exporting a sort of a refined product. And actually taking out one of those, so therefore totally reducing the overall emissions profile of the world. So there is a um, two parts to that, I suppose. But at the same time, you know, if we go back to our earlier conversation, you still need to see that companies are actually making efforts to reduce their emissions, which is what the safeguard mechanism is trying to do. Like there are again regulations in place that will help to do that as well. So. Um, There's huge opportunities, I think, Mm -hmm. for WA. I think one of the other things that we saw from the federal government, and I think that's playing down, is, you know, there's some different ideas of what we might do here um, to produce parts of the energy generation portfolio. We couldn't do it all. It may not make sense, but it might be parts. And I think that's, you know, you mentioned Andrew Forrest. That's some of the work that they're looking at doing with FFI. And so it's really, I think, I've got this sort of catch cry, decarb WA and you can decarb the world. I think we can take a really systems approach to energy, so not just electricity, all of energy. And we've got the bull, we've got what's going on in the South, you've got what's going in the Midwest and you've got your regional and remote. There's so much opportunity that we can start to test innovation and look at new ways of producing, new ways of um, extracting all of these sorts of things and really throw that back in, see the things. Not everything will work and that's okay because with innovation you do have, you will fail at some things, but we learn from that. And imagine if we could get, which is, you know, the goal, I think, of what Horizon Power is doing with all our remote um, communities up north, moving them away from diesel so that they can self-generation through a microgrid. If we can crack that, we can take that to Indonesia. We can take it to
2: Africa. So I think there's a, that. they're just some of the ideas that come mm. to mind when we think about that. Yeah. May I jump in here? Yeah, so every time I hear that... Uh, it's okay to increase emissions in the short term because in the long term, uh, we'll know exactly what to do to bring them down again. Every time I hear that, I'm really extremely worried. And that probably comes from my time on the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, I'm not a climate scientist, but I worked closely with climate scientists who run all these models on on uh, emission reduction scenarios and um Global temperatures and that, So I have quite extensive insight into this. Um, we now know that we as a world, so global community, are going to cross the 1.5 degree threshold um, within this decade, between now and 2030. So just to keep in mind, 1.5 degrees 1. Celsius, 1. 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. So we are going to cross this global threshold within the next couple of years. First, we thought, well, it may be between 2030 and 2040. It's going to be before 2030. The argument that um, we can afford increasing emissions over the short term and then magically, with belief in magical technological solutions, bring it down, what that does, and the concept, a technical concept, is known as overshoot. So we are essentially... Uh, agreeing to overshoot the 1.5 substantially and then forget that the overshoot will have irreversible consequences for many people and the entire ecosystems. So just, and this is a reminder from the work I did on the 1.5 special report, an overshoot is not equally distributed. If we talk about overshooting two three degrees globally this means eight degrees in the arctic right so you imagine eight degrees warmer in the arctic what that does to arctic wildlife livelihoods um, first nations survival um, cultural identity continuity sense of belonging it's going to be gone so if Anybody, and it doesn't matter if it's a politician or a neighbor, says, we should afford, we should allow an overshoot, uh, an increase in emissions to occur over the short term, I would immediately talk about the consequences of going over, whether, they're not, whether or not they're reversible. Likely, for many, they're not. And what that does is not only to provide us with a blind belief in technological solutions, many of which are not, not really ripe enough. That includes carbon capture and storage. And it, it's a distraction of the massive opportunities that we do have, and Peter mentioned some of those, here in WA to massively go after renewables, go and invest in rare earth, precious minerals that are needed for many of the renewables, like solar. Let's invest in that. There's no time to waste with... Uh, Gray hydrogen or even blue hydrogen. Let's go after green hydrogen where we have renewables at place because the consequences of overshooting, I don't know if people have thought through that. And who is going to take the liability of saying we're going to sacrifice, it's called sacrifice zones, entire regions, entire populations, human and non-humans, who is going to take the responsibility for that? I would not and I, not, I don't suggest anybody else does that. So it's a wrong, I think it's a very misleading narrative and we should be very careful when we hear that.
0: I guess, just to finish, what really needs to happen to have a positive outcome, knowing that that 1.5 increase is inevitable, what really needs to happen in the next 10, 20 years to have a positive outcome globally in of you. Well, we few?
1: Well, I, I think we have to keep the action happening, the action oriented sort of side of things. And I guess that's what I'm hopeful of here with the Institute, having looked around, there's been a lot of good work done, but to me, it's still quite siloed. And as I talked about, so I guess I'm thinking immediately first of Western Australia, we need to bring that plan into actually very applied actions. Um, and that get those key players that you talked about, you know, the, the large industry and so forth, but also not to mention the NGOs and the social services, all of them round the table, having the conversation, making those plans. It's a little bit what the Danish Board of Technology did in 2006 and I was part of that. And so actually then those actions and start implementing and holding each other to account. And, and it's okay that one or two things, not everything will work when you're trying innovation, but I think that's what we need to do. And then we also, it's a responsibility as a developed country to actually be holding out the hand of other, other neighbours and other parts of the world. And I think we've got a group um, under, through the Institute Around Energy and Development, which is looking at the global south. And trying—you know for them, it's, it's at the base level of actually trying to help them not revert to burning plastics and dung for their cooking fuel. To help them transition to clean fuel. so again, it's a multi-tiered approach. But for me, it's action-oriented. We've got to we've got to stop the talking and the planning, but actually move forward and hold each other to account in that way across all levels. And I'm actually really hopeful that we can do that. I think also we've got to be very careful about the rhetoric. Um, When I think about mining critical minerals, there's often a negativity associated with it. But in actual fact, there's a lot of work that's being done to reduce emissions. Look at the Electric Mine Consortium. They're all trialling different storage options, renewable energy options. So again. Let's support that, embrace that, work out what's working and move it forward. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Yeah, well said. Uh, Let me add to the global aspect. I absolutely agree. I think as a high-income country, we have absolute responsibilities towards neighbouring countries in the region, whether that's the um, Indian Ocean Rim, um, Pacific areas, but also, I mean, really worldwide. Um, I think getting our own house in order, having a strong political will and commitment to actually having an emission reduction target for 2030 in WA would be great. We need one. We really do. So this is sadly gone since September. Uh, So bringing that back onto the table, I think, is fundamental. But then I think there's also the responsibility of not exporting our coal uh, to neighboring countries. We really should stop doing this and and invest in solutions that are clean, that are inclusive, that are collaborative. Um, there are lots of good examples that come out of communities around the world investing in. Um, microgrids, for example, decentralized energy systems. Uh, There's the wonderful example, which I really, really like. It's the solar mamas. So very often it's African women who have been invited to uh, go to training, go for training in India, who learn how to actually put together their own solar panels. And they go back to their own communities. Often these are rural communities or disadvantaged urban communities or neighborhoods. And then it's these women who are in charge of the solar on their roofs and the batteries, and they can actually fix that. Um, so it's a South-South collaboration. Well, what's the role of Australia in this space? Right? We should offer that. And I think there's a, it's part of our moral responsibility. And then I think there are practices that once we have figured them out, for example, in the context of wind energy here, How can they be translated into contexts um, that may require different types of consultation, but going back to the same levels of deliberations that we had here in our own country? And often we think, oh, these are countries in the Global South, they will just accept the solutions that we bring over out of gratitude. Well, no, we should not think that way. If we consider deliberations and negotiations as quintessential, well, they should be quintessential elsewhere. And we have tons of examples where such deliberations and negotiations and community fora have not happened. Good examples are, for example, in Oaxaca, Mexico, where wind energy is heavily contested and, and enforced in ways that are really against human rights. So lots to learn, lots to do. Uh, having responsibilities domestically and internationally is certainly something that we as a rich, high-income, highly developed country Um, can and should take on.
0: Great, I really like that word at the end, something to do. I guess the answer is action on all levels. Peter and Petra, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And if you want to hear more from experts, stay up to date by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.